Hey, everybody. This is Rupa. Welcome to 2018. Is anyone else really glad 2017 is over? It was a tough year. There seemed to be an earthquake along every ideological fault line that divides Americans. We turned against each other. Across the country, people were attacked because of how they looked. I traveled a lot trying to talk to people about what was happening. I found that these conflicts were hard to define or categorize or prosecute if they weren't caught on cell phone video. And I made the mistake of asking someone if, when one of these encounters happened, they thought to pull out their cell phone. This is Anna, who had a stranger, a white woman, come up to her on the street, swear racist things at her about being Mexican-American, and hit her in the face. You know what, Rupa? When you are in a situation like this, you don't think, oh, let me record this. You think... That wasn't enough in Anna's case, and in many cases. Lots of people who experienced microaggressions or plain hostility had to simply live with it. They had to bury the anger and bitterness. I went numb. But one incident broke through to inspire a new level of fear. In Portland, Oregon, two young women of color got on a light rail train. One of them was wearing a hijab. Another passenger, a white guy, started yelling really horrible racial slurs at them. Two other white men tried to defend the women. And the guy who was doing the harassing slit their throats. They died. A tirade on a train ends in horror. The victims are being remembered as heroes. They didn't even know me. And they lost their lives because of me and my friend and the way we looked. I'd never been to Portland, but I could imagine myself as one of the women on the train. I could imagine the horror of having someone die in my defense. And what happened in Portland was a very personal lesson in the danger of fighting back. But I was confused by where it happened. The only thing I knew about Portland is that it's ridiculously liberal. I'd seen a little bit of that TV show, Portlandia. Do you remember the 90s? Yeah. You know, people were talking about getting piercings and getting tribal tattoos. Yeah. And people were singing about saving the planet and forming bands. Yeah. There's a place where that idea still exists as a reality, and I've been there. Where is it? Portland. Oregon? Yeah. So I wondered how the murders could happen in a place like that. Then I realized I could ask the same question of the U.S. overall. How could a place known as the leader of the free world have all these hateful things happen? So I went to Portland months after the murders, once all the international media was gone, looking for answers that would tell me about that city, but also the whole country. I divided what I learned into three acts, past, present, and future. This episode is the first act, the past. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. It's easy to believe in the Portlandia image. The place looks like a green utopia. It's surrounded by small farms that look European, long, curvy roads that wind through tall, dense forest like a maze, 
and mountains that were once volcanoes. The whole cities split down the middle by a wide river. And all across the river, there are bridges and highways and light rail lines that cross over and under each other. So it looks really cool and futuristic. I had talked to a lot of people before my trip to the city, gotten a lot of recommendations of who to talk to about Portland's history with race. And the guy who made everyone's list was Randy Blazak. And before we go on, since identity will come up a lot in this episode, I'll keep it standard and identify everybody. Blazak's white. He's waiting for me on his porch, and he looks right out of Portlandia with long, shaggy brown hair. I'm Rupa. It's nice to meet you. Hey, I'm Randy. Welcome to my crazy house. We sit on his couch with his young daughter's toys strewn around us. There's a big microphone on the table. He tells me about his own podcast. What's it called? It's called, well, it's about, I have to explain it before I tell people the name of it. It's about um, privilege, the issue of privilege, in which I talk to people who don't have a privilege that I have. Okay. So... It could be a, a, a left-handed person, it could be a transgender person, it could be an African-American person. And so it's their chance to tell me what I, what I don't see. So the name of the podcast is Recovering Asshole. That I'm, I'm the asshole. That kind of ended up being a theme for Blazak. He grew up in what he describes as a Georgia Klan town. I was a kid who wrote an essay for my journalism class that said we, got, we had to write an, an editorial, and my editorial was, if they have Black History Month, why don't we have White History Month? His eyes were open to the error of his ways in a college sociology class, and it didn't help when white skinheads trashed his Vespa scooter. Uh, which is very sad. It was a beautiful Vespa. Uh, and I thought, well, how am I going to get get you back? What am I going to do to strike the, you know, the fear in your heart that you so deserve? And I said, I know, I'll just start studying you guys. He went undercover inside skinhead groups and spent years interviewing Nazis. Now Blazak's a central figure among Portland's organizers and activists as the head of the Oregon Coalition Against Hate Crimes, a partnership of community groups and government agencies. He and the coalition give tours of Portland's racist past. And as it turns out, there's a lot of it. Oregon was once a thriving, diverse place with lots of different native tribes. But that ended soon after white settlers arrived. Indigenous people were forced into reservations. When Oregon became a state, it was the first to enter as whites only. Its first constitution banned black people. The state refused to ratify the amendment that gave black men the right to vote. By the 1920s, Oregon had the largest Klan organization in the western half of the country. The KKK was institutional. I mean, the KKK ran police departments in the state of Oregon in the 1920s. It ran the mayor. We had a governor who was basically elected by the Klan. It was a civil organization. Like, you know, you joined the Lions Club or, or the Kiwanis or something, and you had the Klan. It was sort of that open. Blazak's race tour stops at places like the Portland Expo Center, where thousands of Japanese Americans were held during World War II before being sent to federal internment camps. There's a stop at a riverbank where there was once a housing development the size of a city where mostly black people lived. It was allowed to wash away in a flood. And we end up at a restaurant uh, on Northeast Sandy called Clyde's Prime Rib that in the 40s was called the Coon Chicken Inn. And it was a big caricature of an African-American face that you walk through to get into the front door, yeah. 
yeah, it's hard to believe. Just Google goon chicken in. The images are shocking that that, that was a, a place where people dined for two decades in Portland. Then we get to more recent history. Blazek's tour stops on the southeast side in a nondescript neighborhood of small apartment buildings and homes. Something happened here in 1988, something that I ended up digging deep into to learn more about, because older folks in Portland kept telling me what happened here was a formative event for their generation of local activists. It was the wake-up call that should have prevented the light rail murders. Hi. Hi, come on in. Oh, I was just texting you to see if I've got the right place. You did. I found a woman who lived a few streets away back then, in 1988. Her name's Ndai Okende. She tells me about a neighbor she had back then who was from Ethiopia, like her. His name was Muluketa Sarah. He was just a kid who came to America to have a better life when and make a better life for, for himself. I met him through his uncle because when he first arrived in this country. Okay. And so we were friends. His uncle and I were friends. So when Mulugeta came, uh, I will show you pictures of Mulugeta. Kende pulls out old photo albums. The pictures show a young, small, hopeful immigrant community. It reminded me of my own family's pictures from that time. This is him when we're in the community. Sarah is serious and thin. He uh, looks so young. He was very young. He was 28, and he worked at a car rental place out at the airport. On November 13th, 1988, he went out with other Ethiopian friends to a party, and later they dropped him off at home. He never made it inside. I was in bed and sleeping. It was early in the morning. Her young son was asleep, too, when someone knocked frantically. It was Sarah's roommate. He took her outside, and Kende saw a pool of blood in the street. He told her it was Mulugeta's blood. They got in the car and went to the hospital. They asked to see Sarah, and the people at the hospital took them to the morgue. His head was blown. His whole body was blown up. It was so... It's like a dream, even still, when I think about it, that that day, November 13. I was in a daze. It didn't feel real. The crime took place here on Southeast 31st early Sunday morning. Three black men, all from Ethiopia, were sitting in this car talking. When one left to head for his apartment, another car pulled up. Three young white men jumped out and began beating him. It took a while for Kende to realize that what had happened to her friend had a particular significance in America because Mulugeta was black, and the people who used a bat to beat him to death were members of the white Aryan nation. Yeah, losing Mulugeta was sad, but when it got big like that, it was something unexpected. There were anti-hate protests and rallies and speeches and community meetings. Oregon passed a landmark hate crimes reporting statute. Police found Sarah's killers, and the men were convicted. And then a lawyer from the Southern Poverty Law Center came to town. His name was Morris Dees, and he was trying out a new strategy to stop white hate groups by taking their money. He sued a California KKK Grand Dragon named Tom Metzger and said Metzger had incited the men who killed Sarah. Dees won, and Metzger was ordered to pay $12 million, at the time the most ever awarded in a hate case. Mulageta Sarah became a symbol for people of color 
who felt like they were living in a different reality from white people in Portland. Like Scott Nakagawa. It felt incredibly personal to me. I felt immediately as if I was in danger. Nakagawa was a young college dropout from Hawaii of Japanese descent. He worked at a homeless nonprofit, and once he was chased home by a truckload of white men who pummeled him with beer cans. Portland police said there were no neo-Nazi skinhead groups here, and we saw them. They were, you know, in our faces. At the time, there was a huge new punk scene in Portland. Some bands were known as white supremacists. And the kids who went to the concerts, who weren't racist, pushed back, wearing anti-hate t-shirts and things like that. It became a mini-movement. Nakagawa was on the day side of the operation, collecting white supremacist newsletters, pamphlets, and eventually printouts of listserv emails. They kept it all in an old warehouse that, no joke, they called The Matrix. There were squatters living in one corner and in another, an old printing press, once used by Portland radicals. There was an incident once when a small group of neo-Nazi skinheads came to our door and then started to try to chop it down with pickaxes. And the amount of panic inside the building was just comical. You know, I mean, all the men, myself included, were running around looking for something. When they come in here, what do we do? We need to pick up a club. We need to find a baseball bat. We need to do something. But they were stopped by one young woman who had the presence of mind to simply open the second-story window and point her camera out. And when they realized their pictures were being taken, they ran away. The group of younger activists Nakagawa belonged to allied with a network of Portland groups that called itself the Coalition to Protect Human Dignity. Together, they wanted to prove to police that white hate groups were a threat. The little that remains of their archives is now kept at the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education. Stephen Wasserstrom, a Coalition for Human Dignity board member who's Jewish, showed them to me and Scott Nakagawa. It was the first time Nakagawa was seeing the material in decades. Oh, it brings back a lot of memories. It makes me feel old. <laughs> this is a free music magazine, and what you can see here is Charlie Manson with a swastika on his head spewing blood. Wasserstrom was a Jewish studies professor and one of the coalition's public faces. White supremacist leaders published his name and address, and Wasserstrom got graphic, violent threats. He went to the police, and an officer advised him to get a dog. I'm supposed to go home and tell my wife with these two small children that these Nazis have threatened us, they know where we live, I'm a public figure, and I should get a dog. So, yeah, it was, that didn't feel like it, it made me much more secure. As an aside, Wasserstrom's family did get a Portuguese water dog. They named Otis, and he turned out to be an excellent watchdog. When we would call the police, they would often take a long time to show up, you know. I think because they just felt like these are just sort of people who are just trying to look for a fight, you know. I think briefly we were regarded, some of us, as gang members, you know, anti-racist gang members. That's not what police remember. And we'll hear from them in the next act. But lots of people agree about what happened next. After the standoff at Ruby Ridge, and especially the Oklahoma City bombing, the FBI cracked down on white hate groups nationally, and within a few years, they dropped out of the news. In Portland, activists like Scott Nakagawa and Stephen Wasserstrom drifted to other causes. Nakagawa says they weren't vigilant. We should have been more attentive, but this is the story of America, isn't it? We've done this over and over and over again. This is not the first or the second or the third time. These are historic constructs. 
they are what we inherit from past generations. We weren't the architects of this inequality, but we are living in its legacy. What we do in this lifetime will determine what future generations will experience, and it will inform the stories they'll tell about who we were. I talked to enough people to feel confident saying one basic thing didn't change in Portland in the 1990s and 2000s. People of color continued to experience a very different reality than white Portlanders. This is how law student Gregory McKelvey describes what it was like to grow up black in Portland. McKelvey's the leader of PDX Resistance, a big protest group in Portland. Anybody that grows up in Portland um, that is black or any sort of person of color has the experience of being pulled over because they're black. They have the experience of police uh, pulling up next to them when they're walking and asking what they're doing in the neighborhood. They have the experience of neighbors calling the cops on them saying that what they were doing outside looked like a drug deal. Lots of black people left. By some counts, as much as half. Lots of immigrants came in, but Portland was still the whitest big city in America. In 2010, it was more than 75% white. Meanwhile, more white groups were popping up. One of them was the National Socialist Movement of Oregon. They sent a spokeswoman to meet me in a city park. She said they'd started out as the American Nazi Party way back when, but changed their name when they realized people had a bad reaction to that one. Lately, they'd been working on improving their image by doing highway cleanups and volunteering at food banks. An all-white group, they assume were white supremacists, bigots and racists. And to me, I don't think that's accurate at all. I just think we're a group that strongly believes in the preservation of our race and our people and will do anything to protect it that's not illegal and not violent. We have a mindset of we like to be with our own a lot of the time and it just makes us feel comfortable. And for us, it's like a, almost like a cultural thing. Here's the problem with political correctness. It takes too long. We don't have time. We don't have time. I talked about anchor babies at one news conference, and one of the reporters, actually from ABC, said, that's a derogatory term. I said, why? He said, well, it's derogatory. He didn't know why. And then I said, well, what would you call them? The babies of undocumented immigrants. He gave me like a seven or eight word definition. I said, we don't have time for that. I'm sorry, we don't have time for that. During the 2016 election, candidate Donald Trump argued an extreme liberal agenda was crushing the free speech rights of anyone who disagreed. Critics said that was tacit support for racists, and Trump was making white supremacists feel validated and liberated. And that was when hate incidents started to make a daily appearance on the nightly news. There was a particularly horrific one in Portland. In August 2016, a young black man stood outside a suburban convenience store. He got in an argument with a white couple. Police say the black teen pulled out a knife. Court documents say the white couple got in their car and chased the black teen down. They ran him over, backed up, and ran him over again. The man driving the car belonged to a white supremacist gang he'd joined in prison. 
Again, there were protests and demonstrations and marches and memorials. The Portland anti-fascist group Rose City Antifa started documenting white supremacists, just like the Coalition for Human Dignity had tried to decades before. But at the same time, people like Joey Gibson were buying into Trump's message. Trump was having a rally down in San Jose, and all the people who were leaving the rally were being harassed, and it, that had a, a huge impact on me because I realized that we have a, a big problem culturally. We're being trained to dehumanize people. All you have to do is say they're racist or say they're this or say they're that, and then all of a sudden the mob comes out of nowhere and like tries to, they justify assaulting you, dehumanizing you. Gibson's 33, half Japanese, half white. He started a group called Patriot Prayer, he says, to draw attention to violent people on the left, like Antifa. I want to show liberals that, that th- we are not the violent ones, we're not the hateful ones, and you need to disavow and distance yourselves from these far left, this alt-left protesters, just like we have to distance ourselves from the alt-right. Gibson announced a so-called free speech march in Portland on the same day as the city's traditional annual Rose Festival in one of the area's most diverse neighborhoods. City officials tried to block Gibson's march, but they couldn't. So they canceled the Rose Festival, and Gibson's march went ahead. Gibson said he couldn't control who participated. Antifa argued Gibson was creating spaces for white supremacists to gather. And at that April march, a guy named Jeremy Christian was videotaped giving a Nazi salute and yelling, Die Muslims. Die Muslims! Die Christians! Christian had also joined a white supremacist group while in prison. One month after he was videotaped yelling at Joey Gibson's march, Christian was riding the light rail, muttering racist things to himself loudly. An African-American woman sitting behind him asked him to stop. She was going home from her job as a chef. He started yelling at her. She later told her story at a press conference. Her name's Demetria Hester. It was 25 to 50 people on that train that did nothing. She got off the train. Christian allegedly followed her and hit her in the eye with a Gatorade bottle. Hester maced him. She told a police officer at the light rail station what happened, but the officer couldn't find the man who had assaulted her. The very next day, at 4.15 in the afternoon, Christian was on the same train line. And that time, he committed the murders that put a national spotlight on Portland. The station where Jeremy Christian got off the light rail after murdering the two men, it's not far from the intersection where Mulugeta Seurat died in 1988. And now it's also a stop on Randy Blazak's hate tour. It's part of history, part of a pattern. And if you look at it that way, what happened on the light rail, it began at least a century ago with a culture that didn't value the voices or lives of people of color as much as white people. A culture that must still exist. Because when Trump shook the country's ideological tectonic plates, there was an eruption in Portland. So a fault line still divides the two realities of Portland, one being what people of color experience, and the other being Portlandia. 
Now the question is, can Portland shake its past, make a new pattern, and bring its realities together? That's the next episode. Come talk to me on the Otherhood Facebook page or tweet me at Rupa Shanoi. As you'll see this season, I follow up with people who write in. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. Dum-a-do-dum.